This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. One of the richest families in America is being sued by the state of Massachusetts in connection with the opioid crisis. The state is suing Purdue Pharma, maker of OxyContin, and for the first time, including members of the Sackler family that owns the company. The suit alleges that the Sacklers made billions of dollars as their company pushed doctors to prescribe the painkiller, assuring that it had low risk of misuse, even though they knew it was highly addictive. It also accuses Purdue of failing to report doctors who were over-prescribing the drug. The company is facing hundreds of different suits by state and local governments across the U.S. In 2017, there were over 47,000 opioid-linked deaths in the United States. The newly released documents show that at least one member of the Sackler family was pushing for Purdue Pharma to sell a drug to treat those addicted to opioids, though it actually didn't happen in the end. The company tried to stop many details of the suit from being released, and their lawyers say many of the documents are being taken out of context. With more on this suit, we are joined here in studio by Rob Field, professor of law and professor of health management and policy at Drexel University. He's also a lecturer in the healthcare management department at the Wharton School. And uh, joining us on the phone, Keith Humphreys, professor and section director for mental health policy at Stanford University, as well as senior research uh, career scientist at the VA Health Services Research Center. Rob, great seeing you again. Thanks. Thank you. Keith, great to have you with us. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Great to have you with us. So I guess, Rob, let's start with the fact that the state of Massachusetts, this is one of of many suits against Purdue Pharma, but it seems like they are pursuing this because now they are able to link the family aspect to it and obviously all of the deaths that we have seen. Right. That's very significant for a couple of reasons. One is it personalizes the issue uh, as a storyline. It creates a villain. Uh, and it gets the public more engaged. The other is to get the attention of corporate executives. Uh, there was a settlement with Purdue Pharma and some of its uh, senior executives a, a couple of years ago that resulted in fines, no jail time, and not a lot of publicity. Uh, if this goes forward, uh, there's a possibility of big settlements against individual family members, and yeah. then down the line, perhaps criminal prosecutions. And that's the way you get the top executives of a company like this to pay attention. The burden of proof, then, in this particular case, is what? Well, this is a civil case. Okay. So it's more probable than not or a preponderance of the evidence. It it, it wouldn't be beyond a reasonable doubt as it would be in a criminal prosecution. Um, What's really important about the strategy is it gives them access to internal documents. Right. And they've already gotten emails and memos and so forth. And that's really the power of, of getting past the initial stage of a lawsuit like this. So why the change then? Because as I mentioned, it appears that the other suits were really focused on Purdue Pharma and right. not necessarily the family itself. Um, it's perhaps uh, Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Attorney General is more aggressive, uh, okay. more strategic than the others. And um, there seems to be a, a favorable judge involved. Uh, the family had wanted to redact, to cut out portions of the complaint, and uh, she rejected that. Uh, so that information has become public. Uh, so it's turned out to be a good strategic move. But it, it, Keith, it, it appears that one of the reasons why the state of Massachusetts is doing this, and, and I think a lot of 
of state and local governments are, are following this tact is because of the extra cost that it is laid on them. Obviously, we have the deaths and, and all of the uh, the injuries caused by this, but the extra cost of health care because of the fact that uh, that uh, OxyContin has become such a, a significant issue in this country, it has been a, a financial burden for so many states. Yeah, it's a massive economic burden, and the deaths are only part of it. And most of those people are at peak earning years, and so there's a lot of lost wages for them and strain in their families. But in addition to that, there's disability. A lot of states are carrying many people who are addicted to OxyContin on their workers' comp programs. You have accidents. You, you have school failure. Um, and all that mounds up, a lot of it at the local level. So it's understandable that they're going to try to recover some of those costs. So how do you think then this this particular case potentially links to all those other cases that, that have been out there? Well, it's interesting here is you've got a small privately held company by a family, and the suit has now become about the family. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I agree you know, uh, with Rob that that gives a villain and all, uh, that, that the public can hate. But the other thing is that it, it creates a climate of revulsion like we saw around the tobacco industry because we're seeing people saying horrible things you know, in email and private correspondence. Yeah. And, and you know, under, you know, quite reasonably, you know, jurors and, and victims and judges do respond to that climate. And if I were the family, I would be actually quite terrified now uh, because, uh, you know, that's the climate that has been created by their own behavior being revealed. So it's significant that it's a privately held, a closely held uh, corporation, not publicly held. There are no shareholders outside. It's not publicly traded. So you don't have investors uh sort of guarding what the company is doing. And over the years, uh, the Sacklers, who've been a major presence on the board, have been paying themselves yeah. uh, literally billions of dollars. Uh, so they, they, I suspect they thought that they were fairly insulated from this kind of scrutiny by keeping it pu- uh, privately held. And uh, Massachusetts is piercing that. But the other part to this, which is, is coming out now, is, is the fact that apparently family members were going to doctors to basically to pump them up to make sure that they were continuing to use OxyContin as much as possible to, again, pump the overall numbers, uh, usage numbers up and obviously build the profits. Right. Well, that's not that uncommon as a sales technique. Right. Uh, that's what pharma does for a lot of its products. It's just that most of its products are not deadly and, and highly yeah. addictive and, and major social problems. Um, but but that technique of sending sales reps out, uh, they're just uh, adapting that model to a very, very dangerous drug. And, and so, Keith, those emails that, uh, that uh, Rob mentioned before, if they are showing uh, that the family members were actively involved in this type of activity, then you do have that preponderance of evidence against the family, and that would make them liable in, the, in this case. Yeah, almost certainly. And, and it is true, by the way, that, you know, all companies promote their, their uh, drugs. It's not illegal to do so, right. but there are degrees, right? And so I think the amount of pressure put on these salespeople, the fact that they seemingly knew that certain doctors were grossly overprescribing and they kept encouraging uh, those doctors to prescribe anyway, it, you know, is beyond the, the bounds of what most people, uh, most decent companies, for that matter, would consider acceptable behavior. And I, I think they're going to end up paying a penalty for that. Let's go back. Keith, for a second, if we can, because obviously OxyContin uh, had to go through an approval process. It had to, you know, to be able to get onto the market. And now that we know all of the addictive nature to it, what in the testing, I I guess, was either missed or or not acted on that we did not see or we did not find out about this addictive nature to OxyContin that obviously has led to all of these deaths? 
Yeah, a general question is sort of, you know, where's the FDA overall on the opioid crisis? And because there were multiple products approved that ended up being widely abused, even even some that were allegedly supposed to be abuse resistant. But the critical things about OxyContin were uh, what it was promised to last, you know, 12 hours, you know, so that people would not uh, continue taking more and more of it when they had breakthrough pain. And for some people that was true, but apparently for a lot of people it wasn't, and so they took more than they were prescribed. The second thing is it has a huge amount, uh, a very potent opioid in it that was slow release, but if yeah. you crushed it, you got it all at once. And and that uh, and people started misusing the drug, getting addicted to it right away. And, and one of the things that's come out is that you know the Sackler family was aware of that very early on, uh, and uh, but, but continued to market it. And those two things combined with a campaign that told doctors lied to doctors, you know, and said, "Don't worry, it's not addictive. If, you, if the patient, if they break through pain, just up the dose." Um, you know, uh, that that message, a lot of docs, you know, are not that well-trained in pain, and they yeah. want to help their patients, and they got fooled. Yeah. They were also encouraging doctors to use higher doses. Sure. Um, yeah. And so it's approved by the FDA, subject to indications and guidelines about how it's supposed to be used. And they were urging doctors to ignore those and prescribe more than necessary and therefore make it more addictive. So then how much how much of a of a culpability is there on the physicians in this? Um, physicians are, are culpable if they knew what was going on. Right. Um, they're also culpable for negligence uh, if right. they didn't do their homework. Um, physicians, for the most part, are buffered. Uh, they're considered to be experts and to use their medical discretion. So right. they're you know, b- buffered to some extent uh, against liability in that regard. But when you have a crisis like this and when it's in the headlines every day, uh, I would think suits against physicians may be the next step in this process. Keith? Uh, well, there were individual physicians who were absolutely consciously bad actors. Uh, you know, pill mills in Florida, Kentucky, places like that, where people knew what was going on and were just generating a lot of cash. But most of those people have now lost their license or been sent to prison or both. So, you know, and, and are broke. So, you know, I don't think they're likely to be targets of civil litigation. Where do we stand with the use of of these drugs in the U.S. right now? Because obviously I mentioned the numbers at the top. If you go back just a year, we're still talking about tens of thousands of people, Keith, that that have lost their lives in, uh, in, in instances that were linked to opioids. Yeah, we prescribe more opioids per capita than any country on Earth. Um, by a factor of like double Canada and uh, about five times what Europe prescribes. So we're still way out there on the curve. And it is not the case that we have more pain than other countries. It really is something about our healthcare system and maybe in some sense are the expectations of patients that we prescribe an awful lot of opioids, including OxyContin, but lots of other ones as well. That has gone down in the last five years. We used to be, you know, uh, multiple about six of Europe. Um, but we're still way out there on the curb. And, you know, sometimes, you know, opioids are fantastic. It's, they're not evil. I mean, you couldn't do medicine without them. I did hospice for t- 10 years. You'd hate to do hospice care without opioids, for example. Um, but uh, at the same time, when you prescribe them this much, where almost 100 million Americans get a prescription a year, you're going to have, you know, a certain amount of people who end up addicted to them or get way big prescriptions. They only take part of it, ends up in the medicine cabinet, and then their kid, you know, starts uh, getting addicted to it. So we still have that problem of sort of the raging faucet of opioids coming into the, the bathtub, and the rest of us are trying to sort of bail it out with thimbles at the other end. Rob? So, so something that's very, particularly compelling uh, about this storyline is that the Sackler family uh, was not content 
uh, to make extreme profits off of their drug. Uh, they wanted to push it to the ultimate extent. Uh, so it's, OxyContin was doing quite well. Uh, and then their chair decided to add a sort of jet fuel to the push and, uh, uh, and encourage doctors to prescribe higher doses and, and ignore the warnings. Now, the other part to this, Keith, which I mentioned at the top, was also the potential of Purdue Pharma and this family of also marketing the cure for the opioids. And there you get into all kinds of ethical issues, I think. That was, yeah, I, I said, like, that is our, uh, we get you coming and going plan. Yeah, right? you know? yeah. And to double and to double the profit. Yes, that's right. You know that was that was amazing. But I think it it sort of also shows a a mentality of rather than saying, "Oh my God, we're addicting all these people. We really need to change our behavior." It was, "Oh my God, we're addicting all these people. This has got to become a profit center for us too." So it's quite disturbing. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's kind of like big tobacco buying a a jewel uh, e-cigarette company and and saying, "We'll addict you to the nicotine, and then we'll offer you this product to, to try to wean you from it." 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Rob Field from Drexel University and here at the Wharton School joining me in studio. Keith Humphreys from Stanford University joining us on the phone. I mentioned, Rob, that that there are so many other suits that are out there right Right. now. Where are we in the process of those moving forward against Purdue Pharma? Uh, so those are, are moving forward, and uh, there is an attorney from Dallas who negotiated the master settlement with the tobacco companies back in the 90s uh, who's been retained to try to negotiate something similar. Uh, what could then happen would be a, a huge settlement and the billions of dollars put into a fund that would be shared by the various plaintiff states and counties and cities. Um, it looks like something like that will result. What makes Massachusetts different is getting the family involved. Uh, and, and that is where they could go after their personal fortune. Uh, and as I was saying, perhaps uh, bring this to uh, uh, criminal prosecutions. And for uh, other companies going forward, for the executives of those companies, that's going to really get their attention. Keith, your thoughts? Uh, you know, I, I, I agree with everything that, uh, you know, Rob just said, and I just add that, you know, the most important thing about a settlement may not be the money per se, but whether, as in the tobacco suit, there's enduring uh, restrictions placed on what the industry can do. Um, because yeah. they, they, otherwise, they'll write the check. That's what's happened with a lot of these cases around the country where distributors have been sued or companies have been sued. Is, you know, they write the check and they keep going on. In fact, Purdue did that in 2007. Yeah, they got fined $600 million, but, you know, the revenue on auction is estimated about $35 billion so far, so they can afford to do that. Um, but you could put in enduring restrictions on things like how aggressively are you allowed to uh, market to doctors? Will that continue to be a tax-deductible expense uh, so that the public is subsidizing the marketing of controlled substances? Um, you know, what further monitoring will we put in on both the manufacturers and the, and the distributors so this doesn't happen again? I mean, those are the most most critical things, even though the money is very much needed to to deal with the damage. What then, what does, in your mind, the FDA need to look at, uh, Keith, in order to try and obviously deal with with what is going on right now, but also to try and and mitigate something like this from happening ever again? 
It's interesting. So when I was in the, the White House uh, Drug Policy Office about 10 years ago, I could really see there was a war within the FDA. You know, the FDA, like a lot of people, was initially taken on with the, the sensibility in the 90s that, you know, we needed more, more opioids, we have a lot of undertreated pain, and they sort of prove a lot of products. Uh, and then the, the concern about the epidemic arose, and you could see the agency fighting. And the best example of that was there was a single week where on one day they said, we're not going to approve any more opioids unless they have abuse-resistant features. And the next day, literally, they approved Zohydro, which was a pure hydrocodone with no resistant features. And yeah. those were the two camps battling with each other. I think now, the, 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 with the state of the crisis being undeniable, and also I have to say, very competent leadership, uh, you know, by Dr. Gottlieb at the, at the FDA. Um, you know, they, they understand that, you know, that we can't go back to those old days before. You know, we have to be extremely careful about what is approved, what is described in the materials that go out, and, and what is approved. Um, you still need to take care of pain patients. That's for sure true. But we don't need to have a kind of freewheeling approach to um, getting more and more opiate products out there. Right. Yeah, to, to pick up on what Keith was saying, um, Pain management, uh, from a policy perspective, is a continuing uh, balancing act. Uh, so you get too tough uh, on, the, on the new drugs, uh, on the uh, Oxycontins and so forth, and then patients are in desperate need are denied uh, drugs that, that could help them. Um, and then uh, you loosen up and you get the uh, uh, addiction crisis that we've had. Uh, so it seems as though there's been a, a seesaw going on for the last couple of decades. Yeah. And I think a lot of physicians are concerned that the uh, blowback from what's happening now with, with Purdue uh, will be uh, more difficulty in treating patients who, who truly need powerful drugs. But now there's another company that is also involved, apparently, in this right now, and it's McKinsey and Company. And, right. and they are... Uh, noted in this for apparently preparing reports to Purdue to develop strategies that would increase the prescribing by doctors of the more powerful forms of the painkillers. So you have another company that is kind of looped into this problem as well, Rob. Yeah, and McKinsey makes another perfect villain. Uh, the um, consultants from outside uh, who are the technocrats who are only concerned with the dollars and not the consequences of what they're doing uh, coming in and in some cases uh, telling some companies, uh, you know, lay off half your workforce, uh, raise the prices for, for your products, and in this case, uh, saying addict your customers to a deadly drug. Yeah. And then you also have apparently, and, and as if all of this other evidence isn't damning enough on, on the Sackler family, a couple of reports that I saw talked about the fact that I guess the family itself was viewing the people who had been hooked on the opioids yeah. as as criminals. So you are you are filing a you know a claim against the people who were addicted on the stuff that you knew was addictive in the first place. Right. Well, if this were a soap opera, you think Seriously, that, they, that yeah, the right. script was was over the top. Um, <laughs> but apparently, uh, all, all these things truly happened. Um, that may or may not play into their liability, but it certainly makes them look like bad actors. How does this also play play out, Keith, with uh, the, the, the big pharma industry as well? Because big pharma obviously has come under a lot of scrutiny in the last few years for the pricing uh, of, of a lot of their products. Obviously, Congress, I think, is, is looking to get more and more involved in trying to put a rein in on some of this. I would think big pharma is seeing this and, and has to be very worried moving forward. Yeah, well, let's it's, again, let's think about tobacco. Um, you know, tobacco was king in Washington 
for decades. Nobody crossed the tobacco industry. You were terrified to cross the tobacco industry. And then very quickly, seemingly, you know, there was a change in the public mood and a change in the political mood. And, and all of a sudden, there was this massive federal settlement, and nobody wanted to be associated with them anymore. That can happen with pharma. Pharma is extremely powerful at the state and the federal level. They are very vigorous lobbyists. They're very uh, uh, they make a lot of campaign donations, and for the most part, politicians are not afraid of being associated with them because they make a lot of products that are you know, terrific. Um, but this is the kind of thing that can create a climate of revulsion, and when that happens, politicians can turn on a dime, and you know, my, my close personal friend suddenly becomes who? I don't think I've ever heard of that company. Yeah. I'm not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> and then that comes out in legislation in all kinds of ways, not necessarily predictable predictable ways. Maybe it's not going to be about opioids. It's going to be about, for example, as you said, drug pricing. It's funny, Keith, how the memory goes when you when you get into situations yeah, right. like this, right? I have never let the cold and clammy hand of consistency rest too long <laughs> upon my shoulder, as one congressman put it. <laughs> uh, so so there, there's another analogy here to, to the tobacco litigation. Uh, what seemed to change the tide was the tobacco papers from the mid-1990s, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where it was revealed that the companies were aware of the addictive nature of nicotine, that um, intentionally uh, – manipulated the uh, cigarettes uh, in order to addict people that they intentionally marketed towards kids who didn't know what they were getting into. And I think that spread the tide of revulsion or initiated the tide of revulsion. And then legally, it was extremely powerful. Uh, So I think that is uh, a lot of the significance of going after the Sackler family individually, uh, because you have evidence of individual bad actors knowing what they were doing, intentionally creating the price, uh, the crisis. It prevents them from saying, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were just putting out the products. Uh, it was these criminal customers of ours. It was the doctors or whatever. Um, it, it, um, it's very damning evidence. I would think, Keith, that, and, and I mentioned this uh, to a degree earlier on, but I think that, that from the state's perspective, when you, not just Massachusetts, but a lot of these states that are bringing forth these types of suits we're talking in the billions of dollars that they have had to pay out or had to add extra care because of this specific problem that's been going on in our country for the last decade oh absolutely i mean you know the council of economic advisors estimated the damage of the opioid epidemic at 500 billion dollars a year now that includes some some problems that wouldn't necessarily be direct uh, uh, connected directly to the pharmaceutical industry but this is you know going to be you know not, not i don't think it's going to be uh, billions. I think it's going to be tens or hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in, in the end. Rob? Yeah. And and you look at the secondary sort of social upheaval. Uh, just yesterday, the uh, U.S. attorney in Philadelphia announced he was going to try to prevent the needle exchange program from yes. going, the safe injection sites from going forward in the city. Yeah. And so it's sort of drumming up a, a lot of these social tensions as well. Um, the Kensington neighborhood in Philadelphia has seen this plague of, of addicts uh, littering their streets with, with needles and syringes. Um, so we have all these uh, sort of like uh, waves uh, emanating from the center of, of social disruption, even above uh, the half a trillion dollars a year. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, Rob. Great seeing you. Sure. Good Keith, to great to have you with us. Thank you. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.